0: Today's book offers a comprehensive approach to extraordinary problem solving. Conceived by a super creative quartet of top tier business consultants, the book builds upon a novel premise. What if you framed problems as if they were games of profound significance? How might you design something new or reimagine the old? Particularly when competition increases, technology disrupts, change accelerates, Money tightens and the rules of success are constantly evolving. Today's book shares a flexible methodology for designing powerhouse innovation games. G for guidelines, A for arena, M for materials, and E for experience. Aligning teams with five problem solving lenses, building consensus behind change, and leading and managing the process. This uncommon, easy to read, and very visual book is packed with actionable strategies that will help you and your community thrive when playing the Game of Innovation. It is a pleasure to welcome the author of "The Game of Innovation: Conquer Challenges: Level up your team and Play to Win. David Cutler, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Aiden. It's so nice to have this time with you.
0: It's great to have you on the show, David. And I have great news for audience. I mentioned it's a beautiful book. It's beautifully illustrated, very, very colorful. I have two copies behind me there on the shelf for those who are watching us. That means I have a copy up for grabs for you. And I want to let you know as well, for audience of the innovation show, we now have a paid tier that happened accidentally for me. So I moved the newsletter over from MailChimp David over to Substack. And when you do that it adds in a a paid tier. And many of our audience signed up for that paid tier. So I'm very grateful for that. And as a result, I'm now offering extra content on that paid tier. And also it'll treble your chances of winning the book that's featured each week as well. So it's a great book. And let's get stuck into it. David, I thought we'd start with your company. So the puzzler company, why puzzles, why games, And let's share the methodology of the book itself.
1: Sure. Well, you know, for a long time, I've been working with organizations to help them solve the big, creative, and complex challenges that they face. For a long time, we we couldn't figure out exactly what it was we did. Is this a workshop? Is this uh, just a process? Is this boot camp? And when it dawned on us that actually we were playing games, it changed everything. It helped us develop our own methodology. You know, I consider any uh, carefully architected process to be a game, whether or not it's particularly gamey. You don't need concept cards and uh, and dice to successfully solve problems. And yet there are a lot of benefits to gamifying the problem-solving process. When people feel accountable to a set of rules and results, Sometimes when playing games, people are willing to be a lot more creative than they might be in real life. And uh, for that and other reasons, we've really delved into this notion of gamifying problem solving.
0: And you mentioned the word problem many times throughout the book. But what you do is you reframe the word because you mentioned the word problem. And most people think straight away, a negative connotation comes to mind. And I thought I'd tee you up for that reframing with the book. I want to tell our audience is peppered with beautiful quotes and not the the most common ones you would have heard. So I have to hand it to you and take my hat off to you and the team, the quartet for finding all these beautiful quotes. One of them is from the great jazz musician, Duke Ellington. And he said, a problem is a chance for you to do your best.
1: Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful words. You know, I consider just about everything in life to be a problem, and some problems are incredible problems, right? Throwing a wedding, starting a new business, these are exciting problems to solve. Some of them are just logistical problems. We have to figure out how to digitize the paper trail. Some of them are tragic problems. We need to figure out how to combat poverty or this terrible war in the Ukraine or something. So for me, it's all problems. In fact, the original title for this book, we are thinking about calling it Solving Problems, Solving Problems, which we thought sounded funny, <laughs> but also how do you solve the problems that happen when you're trying to solve problems? And we notice when talking to some organizations, they would say, oh, no, we don't have any problems because they had that negative connotation that you're talking about. We don't have any problems. Now we have some issues. We want to do better. We want to make more money. We want to impact people on a higher level. But those aren't problems. Those are, those are just challenges. So, you know, all words have kind of baggage that's attached uh, to them. But from my perspective, just about everything that we, every project we have is a problem. And my personal philosophy is if a thousand people look at a particular problem or issue and 999 of them arrive at similar conclusions, how might I or how might your organization be the one that views things differently, that finds an opportunity where others see only obstacles?
0: I love this. It it connects so much to recent episodes we had. We had Bill Ayolette on the show with Disciplined Entrepreneurship, and he was talking about the world needs more entrepreneurs, because the problems are getting thornier. And that's one of the drivers behind this show, David is to share ways to solve problems. We've had Charles Kahn on most recently with his book. And he wrote a book that you actually you mentioned in your resource page on your website, Bulletproof problem solving as well. So we we're right behind you with all this. So let's talk about the acronym game. I mentioned it in the intro there. I'd love you to expand on that. But also a few of the different types of puzzle ty- puzzle types. You talk about FTDs, GTAs, and PYOs. I'd love you to unpack these acronyms.
1: First thing you're gonna figure out is what kind of puzzle are we trying to solve, or what kind of problem are we trying to solve. And so I just mentioned at the beginning of the book three uh three problem categories. When the FTD follow the direction, these are problems that you already know what the solution is and you already know the process to getting there. It's like following a recipe, like making scrambled eggs according to a recipe, where if you do what you're told and the sequence that it's given to you, you'll get to a pretty good solution, which could be great for someone that doesn't know anything about cooking, but would be the kiss of death for a Michelin chef, right? So these are not problems of innovation, but you might still get a nice solution at the end. Then there are, GTAs get this answer. When you start solving the problem, you already know what success looks like. It's like like a a jigsaw puzzle, but you got to figure out the sequence to getting there. So a lot of times organizations look at best practices. This is where we want to get, or this this is the model we want at the end of this process. And we just have to figure out the steps to getting there. And that's very different from PYO, paint your own. The notion that your solution is going to look different from anyone else's. Now, here's the key, Aiden, is that so much of the time, I think organizations believe the key to success requires solving a GTA, a get this answer. We need to do exactly what the competition is doing, maybe even a little bit better than they did or a little bit different. But essentially, we want to solve it the same way that others have already solved it. And the irony is that that often is not, is actually the opposite of what you need. And so entrepreneurs and innovators often look to the competition to help them find clues on what not to do, right? There's value to studying the competition, but in some ways that gives you clues on the steps you should not take. So you can find your own voice and paint your own solution in a way that no one else has. You've
0: teed us up beautifully for a graphic from the book I'm going to share. And we'll, when we're sharing these graphics, I, I always try to do my best to be empathetic towards people who mostly listen to us, because most people listen to the show rather than watch the show. And I have graphics David has agreed for me to share that. It's okay. And I'm going to put David into those graphics so he can actually talk to you through the graphic. And there's a beautiful graphic here about the uniqueness of the problem for different people depending on their different consequences and their different scenarios and and where they are with their innovation life cycle even. So I'm gonna share on the screen here, misleading targets, misadvised pressures, misguided expectations, and misplaced focus.
1: Maybe you'll take us through these, David. Well, I wanted to start out by just talking actually about the visual nature of things since you're sharing these images, which are from the book. When we were uh, thinking about Innovation and how to share innovation. We wanted not just to talk about innovation, but for the book to look like innovation. And so, what's so what's very interesting is I think most people, in my experience, are really visual learners. I I, I hear what you're saying, but I just I just need to see it. And so, we worked with uh, uh, a, a graphic designer and an illustrator to this to figure out what does this issue look like. How could we capture it? Visually, and if we did our job well, sometimes the picture helps say so much more than the words could, or emphasizes the words, and vice versa. Uh, this page is about what happens some of the time when you're approaching a problem as if it's a GTA, right? Get this answer, which is sometimes the answer is not even the right target, it's not actually the thing that will help you solve the problem. Sometimes You have this answer is being imposed by others who think this is exactly what you need to do, even though they may be uh, misadvised or they may not actually have your best interest at heart. So as a result of these things, we often place our energy, you know, there are only so many hours in a day, so many people in an organization and we misplace our focus because we're actually not looking at the right problem or it's solving it in the right way, which is why I put so much emphasis, not just on what is the solution to your problem, but how do you design a great process that will lead you to innovation, to remarkable and extraordinary problem solving. Moving from
0: solutions to problems, there's many, many pitfalls when it comes to innovation. But in the book, you point to 12 puzzling pitfalls, David, and we won't have time to investigate all those twelves, But I wanted to point to a couple of important ones. And one that crops up a lot as a facilitator, myself, I'm sure you see this a lot. And I'm sure our audience see this all the time, is that sometimes the leader thinks they need to have all the answers, including leading the session. And it becomes very, very obvious that they want to back their own idea and want support for their idea. And that often comes at the expense of a much more valuable idea coming from the the lower echelons, if you want to call that, of the organization. This is a huge problem. Maybe you'll tell us about that and then some of your other puzzling pitfalls that you see quite often.
1: Well, in the book, it starts out and it lists these 12 pitfalls And then there's a chapter to address each of those types of problem-solving problems or problem-solving pitfalls. One of the big questions is what is the role of a leader? Clearly, the organization needs to change to be relevant and sustainable and thrive in a world that is changing at an exponential rate. But what is the role of the leader? I want to share with you two kinds of leadership that, in my experience, do not work. One is the notion of the top-down leader, the idea that me as the leader, it is my job to figure out the solutions and then kind of impose them on the organization. For starters, it's just impossible that the leader is going to have all of the best ideas by themselves. It just has never happened in the history of humanity, right? Uh, Big ideas often come out of communities and from multiple input points. But even if the leader did have the best ideas, it turns out people do not like being told what to do, right? So uh, oftentimes, even if the solution is exactly what needs to happen, people will push back, they'll rebel, or they'll just check out. And so top-down leadership is an approach I do not recommend. Here's another one. Bottom-up leadership. The idea that, well, if we wanna change, things need to come from the grassroots, from the people in the trenches. The problem with this approach is, first of all, people in the trenches are so busy doing their job, they often don't have the capacity to be thinking about how do we solve these larger scale problems because they may not see all the different pieces of the puzzle in the way that a leader does. And also, most people in the trenches are not trained in design thinking or in innovation, right? do not have these skills inherently. So the approach that I advocate when it comes to change leadership is something I call side across leadership. The notion is that as a leader, you can't tell people what to think, but you certainly may suggest what to think about. So one of the things that I think is really important for leaders is to spend more time focused on building a great process than building the great solutions. And if you do this in a good way, extraordinary solutions are almost guaranteed. So, you know, we talk, my book is called The Game of Innovation, and I really consider any well-designed process to be a game, whether or not it's gaming. So that's the role of the leader. And then they can kind of coach or facilitate from the side, or sometimes they even bring in an external person to do that. But they let their community members be the creative geniuses. And the beauty of that, the beauty of doing that is that not only are the solutions often better, but people are willing to buy in to change, even if 100% of what they suggested is not ultimately adapted. Because they feel like they were really valued and valuable contributors to the process.
0: One thing that always just bugs me, you know, as a facilitator, there's you always have bugbears, but one is when it's very, very clear from the leader's nonverbal language that they disagree, and that they oftentimes do it, and they don't even know. But then the whole room reacts to that nonverbal, and they either slink away from an idea that perhaps could have been revolutionary or breakthrough, or they stop talking about something, some problem that they've uncovered that should be talked about. And I, I say that to link to you, to perhaps one of the, one of your own. So from the 12 pitfalls, one that you see that's pervasive, maybe with the workshops and keynotes that you do with the puzzler company.
1: So one common thing that happens with organizations is someone will come in and They'll describe the problem, maybe in a beautiful and accurate way, and then they'll say, What should we do? And the problem is, you know, that's important. That's probably the reason you're here in the first place. But the problem is that that leaves the door open for any kind of comment. So someone could suggest an idea, someone could analyze the problem, someone could say, I love that. Someone else says, Oh, I hate that. We did that, you know, that's a terrible idea. Someone else says, Yes, we should do that. These are all essential parts of the problem solving process, but not at the same time. And so part of designing a great process is not coming up with the answers, but letting folks know what kind of problem-solving lens you want them to think through. So is this problem about coming up with a creative solution? Is it about understanding the realities of the market today? Or is it about making a decision? And so the second part of the book actually focuses on these, what I call the five lenses of problem solving that are necessary when designing questions or prompts.
0: We'll, we'll come to those in a moment and, and they're brilliant. The lenses are brilliant. But there was a, a diagram to that very point I wanted to share with our audience as well. And this is, is linked to the idea of choosing your puzzle because one of the most difficult things when it comes to innovation is how the word itself is perceived so differently from so many different people in the organization. Some people think digitalizations, innovation, some people think a new business model alone is innovation. And it may just be, but a common language throughout the organization becomes really key. And I loved this diagram that we'll we'll share on the screen, which is to choose your puzzle. What type of puzzle are we solving? Agree that almost with the client before you even undertake a workshop with people. So everybody knows what they're doing, or perhaps the workshop is to decide what this is itself. Maybe you'll take us through this slide.
1: There is rarely just one problem that you're facing in an organization, right? Well, we have to solve this problem. There are problems coming from every angle. And so one of the first things you have to decide is what is the most important problem that we want to focus on? You hear people talk a lot about time management and Time management is indeed very important, but I'm thinking more and more about problem management or project management. Which which problem should we address first? Is it the easiest one, the one that we can solve in the least amount of time? Is it the most thorny problem? Is it the one that will actually help our organization the most in terms of whatever our top priority is? So on this slide, you can see different kinds of large-scale problems that we will often focus on when playing innovation games. How do we invent something new? How can we reimagine the old, what we've always done? How might we design a structure for something? We know what we want it to look like, but how do we build it? How can we clarify the purpose, the mission of why we exist in the first place? How do we seize the dream? What it is we want to do or stop the pain, transform Our culture. This is a big problem in lots of organizations. We're making lots of money, we're making lots of impact, and our employees are miserable. So, this slide just goes through a bunch of different uh, types of puzzles. And then, one challenge for leaders is to figure out where do we want to place energy right now? The other thing I found with that
0: slide is that sometimes you're brought in as a, you know, to run an innovation workshop for a team. And the goal is not often just innovation. It's not like the team, the team leader wants you to go and create something new for the organisation. It can be about bringing the team together, getting diverse voices onto the table, start to listen to people, maybe people who don't really speak up because the extroverts take all the air out of the room, whatever it might be. And this slide, I found really, really helpful to even articulate that to kind of go, it depends on what you want. Because yes, I can do an ideation or a brainstorm workshop for you. But maybe that is to bring your team together. Maybe it's a new team, maybe you're a new leader, and you just want to have a bit of fun, whatever it might be. And we might it might be in the guise of innovation. So I found throughout the book, these slides on part C of the book, by the way, is all for the facilitator, how do you facilitate uh, par excellence? How do you run the workshop? How do you prepare for the workshop? We won't get to any of that today, but I just wanted to point that out David to the to the oral audience as well. If you're a facilitator, I want you to win this book as well by the way. So do enter the competition for us.
1: You know, innovation like any other word means lots of different things to different people. To me, I define innovation as extraordinary problem solving. Right? The point is not to just do something new or different because just because hopefully there's a larger Goal behind it, but to 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 the frame that you just uh, provided, you know one of the benefits of playing a game is that it makes your team, if it's well designed and well orchestrated, makes your people closer. Sometimes we say, "Well, how do we work? How do we get our employees more more engaged and more committed to our organization?" Well, you could throw a mixer, right, and just have people talk, and that's fine. Or you could say, well, we're going to bring people together and we're going to just talk at them. But that, you know, one thing they can really do it, this is one of the things I, I love the concept of meeting. I know a lot of people hate meetings. It's the thing that they dread the most about being in any organization. But the thing about a meeting is this is the time that you bring your talent together. And if you really want to move things forward, this is the time not to just information share, or ask some questions and answers, but often to put people on teams so that they are solving the problems of the organization, and by doing that, you may not only be solving the problem but also solving the team at the same time so it's actually a fantastic way to multitask in this sense
0: let's share as well and, and I, I love this about the book. It helps you decide where you 're playing in the game where, where am I playing, what type of game am I playing, et cetera What are the rules of that game? But you talk about three c's again and th- and these are you talked about the process being so important, the three C's being challenges, criteria, and constraints. And again, understanding these, A, as the designer of the game, if you're the person who's bringing innovation or a workshop to a team, and B, being the buyer of that. And why do I want this workshop or whatever it might be for my organization? They're really, really important questions. And you help us to have a language for that with this book. So I'd love you to take us through these three C's.
1: So there's a lot of wordplay in this book. So as you mentioned, GAME is an acronym, and the G stands for guidelines. So the first step to designing a process is to figure out what even is the problem where, you know, what are what are what are the general parameters of this problem? And there are these three C's that you're talking about that form the guidelines. What is the challenge? What is the most important problem you're trying to solve in one clear sentence. So if you ask, well, what's the problem we're trying to solve? Oh, it's complicated. Some people don't even understand that. Well, they're probably not going to get to innovation. So what is the fewest amount of words that you can use in order to, in one sentence, clearly define your challenge? Then criteria means what constitutes success? If we have a great solution, what's what's the ideal? How will we know if we win this game? And constraints are about what are the non-negotiables? What has already been determined? What can't be challenged? You know, Aiden, what's What's interesting is a lot of times I'll talk to people who want to be creative and they say, why do we need any constraints? Why can't we just let our imaginations run wild? You know, like my kids after bedtime, <laughs> something like that. Uh Why don't we just, you know, put it all out there? The thing with innovation is that the road to everywhere leads to surprisingly few destinations. When you say you could come up with any solution, find often people just arrive at the obvious or maybe they get paralyzed. So often a great constraint is something that can help you arrive at the most interesting solution. Let's say the problem is someone's running a conference. And they decide, well, we want to do something really interesting in the conference. So they just ask their people, well, what are your brilliant ideas? What might we do next year? It's probably going to be more of the same, maybe just one degree of difference. But if you impose a constraint and you say, you know, whatever we do has to involve somehow coconuts, <laughs> right? Well, all of a sudden that forces people to think in a really creative and different way. And they probably would not have come up with a coconut, and I just made that up, but uh, without that. So sometimes constraints, the right constraint can really help people think in a much more creative way.
0: You even mentioned, for example, timelines. So one of the shows we had a, a long time, a great guy on the show, a guy called Shamin Prajantam. He wrote a book about partnering between legacy organizations and startups. And he said, one of the problems with an incubator is that you bring in some startup and you don't give them a timeline that they have six months, he said, because you got to put that constraint on them in order for them to move fast. Otherwise, they'll just keep being innovative with no type of output. So throughout the book as well, David offers those type of little bits of advice, but also the books peppered with great examples. And obviously all the names have been changed to protect the innocent. (laughs) But, uh, I wanted to share one example that is so common, particularly to the audience of this show. We have many CEOs and leaders who listen to the show and who are encountering change like never before. And one of the examples David gives is, First Tradition Bank, obviously (laughs) it doesn't exist. And recently they've bled clients. Unfortunately, past efforts to do things differently have triggered fierce opposition from employees sounds familiar for so many of our audience who cling to the status quo. The new CEO recognizes that staff will revolt if he or she imposes a change vision. Instead, they are brought into the process through a game. While no solutions are imposed, conditions are set. And I'd love you to talk about this, David, because this is something that a CEO or leader would not think about is putting conditions in place because of exactly what you talked about there, but they can actually unlock innovation if it's done right.
1: Well, in this example, I used for constraints, and I've done this with many organizations, the constraints are actually about how much innovation needs to be in the idea or in the ultimate solution. So sometimes I have, you know, lots of organizations just don't want to change anything, but there are other people uh, within organizations that sometimes say, well, let's just blow it all up. Let's just start from scratch. And I always think there's got to be something positive about what we have done historically. So in this example, I gave three constraints. I said, 20% of whatever the solution is must be innovative. At least 20% of the solution must be traditional. And the other 60%, you decide with your team where it should be along that continuum. And then often, then we have to figure out, well, what means innovative? Because what actually constitutes innovation? And so a lot of times I will have different, very carefully uh, articulated definitions. Maybe if we're brainstorming with Post-it notes, we will use different color Post-it notes to show clearly which type of innovation is this. So one type might mean a lot of competitors do this, but it's new for us. There might be another post-it that says, well, at least uh, only 25 to 50% of our competitors do this. So it's not totally innovative for our industry, but not everyone is doing it. It puts us on one half of, of uh, of the equation. Or you might have another one that says, only 1% to 5% of our competitors do this, or no one else does this. So when you're thinking about the 20% that must be innovative, you're really putting it in a context and saying, how important is this to us, or how how much does this differentiate us from everyone else?
0: We'll move on from G. So it's the game of innovation. G is done. Let's move on to A, which is arena. And this addresses the conditions we have to work with. And on the screen, for those who are watching us, you'll see there's three P's here, as opposed to the three C's before. Puzzlers, period, and place. Again, David, I'd love you to take us through these three.
1: So the arena means, what do we have to work with as I design this problem-solving process? What do I have to work with? Who are the puzzlers? Who are the people most equipped to solve this problem? What is the period of time we will have, right? How long will we have to solve the problem and place? Where will we do our problem solving? Will it be in a building, in the, in the in the main office? Will it be off-site? Will it be in a, excuse me, will it be in a virtual setting? Uh, where will we solve this problem? So before designing an experience, the E-G-A-M-E, right? The experience, before we can design the experience and figure out what happens, we've got to figure out what do we have to work with. So let's
0: move on to the M. And M stands for materials. And again, I mentioned how great this book was for a facilitator. So if you're running a workshop or designing a workshop, either within an organization or you're a consultant like me working for organizations, it is really, really helpful. So M is for materials. And again, the acronyms kind of fork into three different things three Gs. And in this case, Gs are gatherables gear, and game
1: boards. So gatherables are the kinds of raw problem-solving materials you may already have a lot of them. It's about writing implements like pens and Sharpies and crayons and Post-it notes and flip charts and, and uh, prototyping materials and the likes. So I really like to work with tactile materials, especially, you know, kindergarten supplies Especially in our digital era, I find that people are often much more creative when they're working with actual things that they hold in their, in their hands. Uh, gear is specifically refers to game types of items, like dice and concept cards and spinners and we'll put things in balloons. And not only do they make the experience more game-like and more fun, but when used well, they can really help teams get to more innovative
0: solutions. I'm doing this so I can help our audience get a a, a mental model of what the book kind of feels like, a map to what the book feels like. So the, the E acronym, the, the letter E stands for experience. And you say when building an experience, you determine the game type, which is sorts, and sequence of activities, which is structure. And there's a chapter also that concludes with several examples which is sample, so the E has a subset of three S's.
1: So at this point, you already have the guidelines. You, you know what the game is about, the problem you're trying to solve, and kind of the, uh, the the criteria and the constraints. You already know the arena, who's solving the problem, where you're solving it, and how much time you have. You know what materials you're working with. Now you gotta figure out exactly what's going to happen. There are a lot of different sorts of games you might play. Uh, with various teams. So tournaments, this is where you have different teams that are competing against one another to come up with the best answer, or you could design something with fusion rounds. So we have different teams that are looking at maybe the same problem. They come up with different solutions. And then the idea is to synthesize their ideas and take the best pieces of this one and combine it with this other one. Sometimes it makes sense to design RPGs, role-playing games, where, you you actually become a character, so that can help your puzzlers empathize with different communities when they're playing that role. That often is a different role than who they are in their every other in their everyday life. Uh, there are elimination contests where you have different teams, and at each stage you're going to get rid of the ideas that aren't as strong going forward, and then they become part of a larger team. Or you see you know who who who's the last one on the on the island or something. So there are all kinds of different types of games that you might design and then you have to figure out the structure which questions get asked and what order and for how long and then in the book I give a a whole bunch of different samples of innovation games
0: yeah and those games can be like one to two days to 3 to 6 hours or even short like a mini workshop or a keynote and again the puzzler company does all them I do all those as well for clients as well and we we love doing that work but finding out what you want what the desired outcome is really really important. So David, at this stage I thought we'd move on to part B and I loved part B. I was trying to get here qu- as quickly as I could while still doing justice to the book because part B is about the five lenses that you talk about in the book and it works so beautifully serendipitously with last week's show which was with friend of the show Charles Kahn on his book The Imperfectionist Mindset and he talked about five mindsets in that book. One of them was called Dragonfly eye and the idea that a dragonfly sees in multiple variations. And this maps beautifully to the characters and the mindsets that you share in the book, the different lenses. I'm going to share on the screen here, firstly, the five characters. (laughs) And I'd love you to take us through them because so many people listening to the show will be nodding and kind of going, oh, yeah, I know that person. I know that type of person they are. But also what I found this slide does is it gives you empathy. So some people are quiet, and you might mistake that quietness for perhaps they are not. They're disengaged, or they're not listening. But they might be a deep thinker, and they might need to do deeper research, and they might need to quiet storm rather than brainstorm out loud. There's so much in this slide; it's deceptive. But I'd love you to take us through it.
1: This section starts with a play that's meant to be funny, but it's called Problem Solving Blindfolded. In this play, there are five different characters. They're all really important parts of the organization, but they wear one problem-solving lens and just that. And you can see, you can feel the friction that happens when people are using these different problem-solving lenses at the same time. And it's just reminiscent of so many problem-solving meetings that I've seen. You have D. Sides, right, who is kind of the facilitator of this, and she wants to help them make a decision, any decision. Uh, you've got Reed, Cer- Reed Searcher is his name, right? He is a researcher. He all he's interested is going to the going to the books and learning learning the ways of the world and how things are and how things have always been. You've got Rip to Shreds, who is so negative. He's 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 never uh, uh, he's never seen seen a situation he didn't hate, right? <laughs> he always wants to critique everything. And then on the other hand, you have got Gladys Haffel right? Who wants to be so affirming and so positive about everything? And then finally, you've got Ivan idea. who is just so creative, bursting at the seams with new ideas about how we might solve every problem under the sun. And you can see when they talk together, it is completely uh, dysfunctional.
0: It's such an important slide, though. I know I mentioned it's deceptive, and it's deceptive because it also gives you the empathy behind those. But what what is key here is something that you talk about is that everybody knows where they are in the process. First, we're going to look at this through a yellow lens, then a green lens, then a red lens, etc. And let's go to that next. And I'm going to share the next slide, where you show the different colour, you show what each of the letters means green for gather, for example. And then you you talk about how that lens plays out in the organisation. I'll just leave this slide on, David, and then perhaps you'll unpack each of the lenses and you'll have this as a visual to talk to.
1: So each lens is symbolized by a color and a word that starts with the same letter to help people remember. And the thing is, all of these are le- lenses are important and, and everybody can do all five of these, but the key is to do just one at a time And so when you're leading a process to ask a question so that your puzzlers are very clear about what is the lens I should be looking through at this particular time. Green stands for gather. This is about research. This is about asking what can be learned? What do we know? This is not the time for creativity. This is not the time for feedback, but just understanding the way of the world. P stands for purple or propose, this is asked what can be imagined. It's about creativity, new ideas. This is not about evaluating the ideas that come out, but just putting as many new fresh ideas into the world as you can. B stands for blue, boost. This is about what works, about affirming, about positive feedback and how might we amplify something. The second lens of feedback Is R red, which stands for rip. What's wrong? This is about constructive critique. What's not working or what might not work. And finally, there's the orange lens, which stands for own, which is about making a choice, making a decision to stand for one thing at the expense of a thousand other things.
0: So let's move on. And for audience who are listening to us, I've changed the slide here. And the the next slide is just under the green gather lens. And under there, David breaks it down into different types of ways to gather and to learn. So this is another acronym, acronym, LEARN. And again, so, so useful to figure out, well, what type of gathering are you doing?
1: So these are five different types of research activities. L stands for logistics. How does it work? What do we actually already do? And what do our competitors do? E stands for emotions what do people feel? And a lot of times, you know, people may not know the solution to your problem, the innovative solution to your problem, but they will certainly understand the way that they feel about things. So I always look for elation points. What do I love? Fantasy points, what would I love? And pain points, what can't I love? A stands for assumptions you know, these, what are the things that we believe? And then you have to identify them before we can actually test to see if they hold up to scrutiny. R stands for resources. What assets might we access? A lot of times for any problem, think about it like this. You may have all of the resources you already need, but just need to think a little more creativity, creatively about what is available to you. Who are the people in your network? What is the equipment that's available to you and the likes? And then N stands for narrative. How did we get here? And the thing that's interesting is that often different constituents have a very different narrative or sense of the path to the present.
0: Recent shows we've done, for example, I mentioned Disciplined Entrepreneurship with Bill Ouellette. And I wanted to emphasize the discipline part, because that is something that's not synonymous with innovation. People kind of think it's scrappy, etc. But the more disciplined you are, the less mistakes you'll make, and the better the bets will be. And this also echoes recent episodes we've done with Rita McGrath on her discovery-driven planning. And innovation and product management and development done right is systematic. And this is why I loved one of the lines that you mentioned under the P, which is propose. You say, to propose the remarkable, ask great questions, generate mountains of possibility, and prototype the minimum. One of the most difficult things is actually to stop doing things or to decide what to do in the first place. And this all comes under the the proposed lens.
1: You know, how you ask the question impacts the answer. Most people ask boring questions, and as a result, they get boring answers. The least inspired of all, what should we do? (laughs) Now, of course, it's an important question. That might be the very reason you're here in the first place. And yet it's unlikely to unlock innovation. But if you ask a crazy question, you might get a crazy answer. If you ask an intriguing question, you might get to an intriguing answer. So instead of, what should we have for lunch today? You might ask, what should we have for lunch today that will make us laugh uncontrollably in 20 years? Changing the question changes the answer. And so in this purple chapter, I share a whole bunch of different types of question structures that can help people access more creative parts of their imagination. Yes. And I have people that say, I'm just not creative. And I just have never met a person who wasn't creative. If you ask the right questions, one of my favorite techniques is something I call disaster storming. And the notion is that instead of asking to come up with good ideas, you start off by saying, what are the absolute worst ideas that you can imagine to solve this problem? And the thing about terrible ideas, which is so different from good ideas or maybe bad ideas, is that truly awful ideas, you have an emotional reaction to. They really make your stomach growl and the likes. And then once you have these terrible ideas, I'll often ask groups, how would you transform that into a remarkable idea? And often greater innovation happens in that context than when you just say, well, what's your good idea for this? You mentioned there
0: disaster storming, and throughout the book you share loads of these great ideas. In the chapter under Blue Boost and Red Rip, you share a couple of examples, and I love these. One was the idea of the fear board, And the other was the ritual of the celebration circle. Perhaps you'll share these. These were great little ones that any team can do. You don't need a facilitator. You could be the leader of a team. You could even do this on your own if you wanted.
1: So this chapter combines two lenses that are both feedback lenses, the blue boost lens and the red rip lens. So the positive feedback and the negative feedback or fears and the likes. So the notion of a fear board, it's a strictly red lens activity, but for some steps of a process, sometimes there's value to just articulating in the worst case scenario, what could go wrong? This is especially valuable when you're working with an organization that needs to change and people often fear change. So let's just put it out there. What are you actually concerned about? And the benefits of doing this is, A, that people feel really heard, like the leadership is really understanding what their concerns are. And B, they may actually suggest some things that the leadership had not been thinking about before. Sometimes their fears are totally unfounded. And this is absolutely not where we're going. But by saying it out loud, saying, we promise you this is not what's going to happen, that can assuage a lot of fears. On the other hand, sometimes fears come out that the leadership haven't even imagined before and it can help them focus. So this can be a helpful activity at a certain point in the process. The opposite is the celebration circle. Something I like to do, this is a completely blue lens boost activity. And this is something we'll often do at the end of a process or partly through the process. And here's how it works. You have your team, maybe you have a team of, six or eight people get in a circle and they start with one person and each person is only allowed to say positive feedback about that person, what they love about how that person works in life. And the thing is, if you're the recipient of this praise, you are not allowed to comment. So a lot of times when it makes us really uncomfortable to get praise and to say, Oh no, really? And we discount kind of our value. But to hear people say what they really appreciate about you creates so much goodwill, and often generates lots of tears. Maybe it sounds a little hokey, but I've seen it be very, very powerful with teams. This is not to discount that all of us have challenges when working with one another, but to to help people feel like they are truly valued. Sometimes just hearing from their colleagues about what comes across and what is appreciated about them can be incredibly rejuvenating.
0: I'd love to finish on that one, but there's one I think is so important. And I'm going to call it out because so much in organizations, particularly legacy organizations, and particularly organizations that are highly regulated, there's an issue with accountability. And oftentimes for good reason, it's often because People are just afraid to make the decision in case it comes back to bite them in the backside. And oh, the orange lens is for owning. And this involves the backing of the idea, which can be a difficult thing to do because, firstly, you're trying to decide the idea, but then you got to back it. You got to put all your energy behind that. And I liked among many parts in that chapter, you offer an acronym called the best acronym. And perhaps you'll take us through this, and any other thoughts you might have about accountability.
1: One thing that I've seen happen in many organizations is we go through a process. For example, I might ask uh, in your organization, what's really exceptional about it? What 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 should I be really excited about your organization? And they come up with seventeen or twenty three great things. And then the next question is, what are the what is the single most important value that you offer? What are the three most important values? And sometimes teams will rebel. Why do we have to choose between our babies? Why can't we do all of these things? Well, can you imagine if you say, the 17 most important things that our company does is this, 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 this. Nothing will stick. And I often challenge people in the room, close your eyes. Can you even remember what they are? If those are the most important things that you do. And if you can't, how can you market that message? So I think great organizations make decisions. So using a rubric is one tool for doing just that. And so that's what BEST stands for. It stands for budget, ease, striking, and transformative. And the idea is that you create uh, different categories where you're going to give it a numerical score, maybe from one to 10, 10 being the best score that you want to achieve. So budget means how affordable is this? So if it's Super cheap, you would give it a higher number. If it's really expensive, you give it a lower score. Ease means how feasible is this? Could we really pull this off? S stands for striking. How innovative is it? How different is it from our competition? And T stands for transformative. How meaningful is this idea? Will it really impact our customers in a deep way or will they not care? And so if you're trying to figure out, for example, which initiative or which idea, which proposal might we pursue, this is a mathematical kind of scientific way of approaching it. So we've got six great ideas, but when we look at it this way, this one scores a 38, this one's only a 26. So it can really help you make a decision.
0: I thought it was so, so helpful. And again, I want to tell our audience that I have a copy of David's book, Up for Grab's, Hardback cover, beautifully illustrated. So useful if you're a facilitator, if you're a design thinker, if you're working in any type of creative field. Brilliant book for any part of that journey. And just sign up to our Substack. And again, if you're in the paid tier of the Substack, you get triple the chance of winning the book and a, a slew of new features that we'll be launching here on the Innovation Show. David, where can people find out more about you, the quartet that wrote the book? and indeed your work with The Puzzler Company.
1: Best place to go is just to our website and you can find everything from there, www.thepuzzlercompany.com.
0: We've been planning this for a very, very long time, ever since you just about published the book. Author of The Game of Innovation, David Cutler, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks so much, Aiden.